Well, at this point, I want to introduce you to someone who's going to be visiting uh, here along with me over the next few months. No, I don't have a little child in the pew uh, with me this evening. Uh, I want to introduce you to James. He's someone we can learn uh, a lot from, and he's got quite a bit to say to the church, uh, to our church, this church, to every church. And perhaps you know that already. Uh, many people love the book of James because it seemed to be both practical and to the point, as well as full of vivid pictures, like a face in a mirror, uh, a bit in the mouth of a horse, the tongue like a forest fire, or the presumptuous businessman. It's practical in that there's so many clear commands to Christians in this book compared to others in the New Testament. This fact, though, has led to some having problems uh, with the book, not least the reformer Martin Luther. We'll come back uh, to his criticisms uh, in a little minute or two. It's to the point as well as being practical. Uh, James makes his point and moves on. Some church members wish their ministers would do the same uh, more often. Maybe that's the case for me. Uh, at times, James does this without really seeming to explain his point. And connected to this, it sometimes seems there's no real structure to the book. Even in what we read there in chapter 1, James moves from talking about trials to wisdom to the rich and poor, back to trials, truth about God, the problem of the need to not only be hearers but doers of the word, then back to the rich and poor in James 2. Current randomness in structure and topics, it's, it's left many confused in trying to detect a structure to make sense of what's going on in the book. Uh, Bible uh, scholars uh, have made a wide variety of suggestions for a coherent structure, which almost proves the point that James isn't a neatly organized book like others in the New Testament with a sustained argument being presented. Other letters go along the lines of, here's the big concern. It has three parts, part A, point one, point two, point three, part B, point one, point two, etc., etc. Instead, James seems like a random selection of topics, not always connected logically to one another, and it might leave the impression there's no overarching theme to the book. Well, if we're trying to listen to James and understand him in this way, it might just be that we aren't listening in the right way. Maybe James is speaking with a bit of an accent or a way of speaking we're unfamiliar with. Did you ever get that, where someone's actually speaking English and, and you're, you're thinking, what's that now he's saying? Uh, I've been the minister here for a year and a half up the road in Donamoggi, and I was going out one day to visit one of my uh, uh, church members not too far from here. Uh, when I arrived at his house, he was out in the shed or garage fixing something, uh, and I got chatting. He says, oh, what are you up to? And he says, well, I'm uh, fixing this light. He says, that's my shade uh, over there. Uh, and I sort of looked across, and he was pointing across the fields, and I could see some trees, and he was talking about the shade, and I thought, what? That's the sun. Does the sun shine? And these trees provide some shade there, and I couldn't and honestly, it was about five, ten minutes, he was talking about this shade, and I said, he says, do you see it over there? And, I, and then eventually I'd say, sir, what, what is it you're saying? And eventually, you already know, he was talking about a shed. Um, in Port Stewart, where I'm from, we call it a shed, but uh, some of you maybe call it a shade, but that's a different, a different accent, a different way of saying uh, something. Uh, well, when it comes to James visiting us on Sunday evenings, we'll have to bear in mind if he doesn't speak with a County Antrim accent, doesn't speak with a Kells and Connor accent, uh, nor any sort of Northern Irish accent, we need to train our ears to what he's saying, because maybe our ears 
are more attuned to the Apostle Paul's way of talking than the Apostle James, brother of Jesus. After all, there's only one letter of James. There's 13 letters of Paul in our New Testament. And if that's the case, and Paul is our our usual go-to books, then James can present us with difficulties in terms of how we understand him. Uh, Some want to actually pit Paul and James against one another as if they're contradicting uh, one another. Uh, Paul is about faith, but with all the commands, yes, it's practical, but James is about works. Paul in Galatians 2.16 says justification is by faith alone. James in chapter 2 verse 24 seems to contradict this by saying faith without works is dead. There'll be a future sermon when it comes to that passage in more detail, but we can address it a little bit now. And we come back to the reformer Martin Luther's critique of the book. He called it an epistle of straw, a letter of straw. Not a very good sounding uh, description, but in that description he's actually alluding to uh, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 12, where it says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. For Luther, the likes of Romans would have been, uh, in a sense, the gold standard, but in his view, James is like straw. It has its uses, Maybe farming folk here know that. Maybe you use it for bedding down for your animals, but it's not as precious as gold. Luther did not disregard James completely, though in fact he quotes James in his various works. And it's maybe helpful to also remember the context in which Martin Luther found himself at the beginning of the 16th century. He was dealing with the legalism of the Roman Catholic Church and the need for works of penance. James seems to be all about works, not so much about faith. I wonder, is that a valid statement to make? Well, on the face of it, James as a whole only explicitly mentions Jesus twice. Uh, If you look down there, verse 1 of chapter 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And then over the page, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So when he mentions Jesus twice, and yet look at the high esteem with which he holds his brother. He is a servant, even slave, not only of God, but of Jesus. And in chapter 2, verse 1, this Lord Jesus Christ is described as the Lord of glory. James does uh, show similarities with uh, Old Testament uh, wisdom books, particularly Proverbs, but more striking are James's similarities with the teaching of his brother, the Lord Jesus, particularly the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. James doesn't directly quote uh, Jesus, but his writing is infused with the teaching of Jesus. He's inspired by the teaching of Jesus, and it pours out from his heart to his pen. And the biggest example of this is in James chapter 5, verse 12, where he says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. I'm sure that's maybe a little bit familiar to you. If you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus says very similar in, in chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 33 onwards. So it's a book filled with the teaching of Jesus, even if Jesus is only explicitly referenced twice. 
And something else we could say on this apparent discrepancy between Paul and James. James' emphasis is on bringing command and encouragement rather than giving information. That doesn't mean he rejects the truth of what we read elsewhere, but rather he mostly assumes it. He assumes you know it. He doesn't need to to rehash it. He's dealing with a different issue. And what I mean by information or truth is what we might call, to be a little bit technical, the indicatives of our salvation. In other words, what has already been done, done for us, what's already true. Throughout the New Testament, we see a finely balanced relationship between the indicatives and the commands, commands, uh, imperatives. Uh, We even see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the Ten Commandments. Think of the Ten Commandments, the prologue. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Something God has done, something that is true, a deliverance, an indicative, and that's followed by the imperatives, you shall have no other gods before me, and so on. We see it in the New Testament, across whole books. We see it in Ephesians. Ephesians 6 chapters basically divides in two. Chapters 1 to 3 is all focused on the indicatives, on Paul outlining the great wonders of how God has accomplished salvation uh, through Christ and applied it by his spirit. Then chapters 4 to 6 moves into imperatives. Chapter 4 verse 1 begins, I urge you therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Similarly in Romans, Romans 1 to 11, there's hardly a command in the whole book. I think the only command in Romans 1 to 11 is a command to remember. And then Romans 12 begins, in view of God's mercies, first 11 chapters, therefore offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And so there's imperatives then at the second half of, even the second half from 12 to 16 of Romans. So this indicative imperative relationship is clear. But when it comes to James, many have a problem because the indicative, the truths of our salvation that have been accomplished are mostly assumed. His concern is the imperatives. We do see it a few places, as, as I already highlighted, those verses that mention Jesus Christ in 1.1 and 2.1. We also see it in, in chapter 1, verse 18, where we read, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And then in verse 21, uh, where it talks about the implanted word which is able to save your souls. show that I'm not just uh, saying this off my own bat, I'm in good company, John Calvin uh, said, it is not surely required for all to handle the same arguments. God has given us Paul for a reason, he's given us Luke for another reason, he's given us James for another reason, he's given us judges that you've been looking at on Sunday evenings for another reason. We have the whole counsel of God, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for us. God, by his Spirit, has each book, even each passage, each verse, in this book for a reason. Luther was in a context of legalism. It may just be that James was addressing legalism's ugly, non-identical twin. What do I mean by that? Have any of you got ugly, non-identical? Sorry, I shouldn't shouldn't put it like that. An ugly, non-identical twin, well, what is, what is that, uh, what do I mean by that? Well, the opposite of legalism, the non-identical twin, is what theologians would call antinomianism. 
to make that simple. Nomos means law, so empty any sort of law in the life of the Christian. See an example of this uh, kind of thinking in the Bible in one verse, Jude 4, speaks of godless men who turn the grace of God into a license for immorality. It may just be that James is written to confront those tendencies because true biblical doctrine sometimes is so finely balanced and we tend to fall either into legalism or go the other way into antinomianism. So this is what James is maybe directed at. And uh, the Westminster Confession, chapter 11, interprets what's going on in James. It keeps the balance well when it says, the faith that receives and rests on Christ and his righteousness is the sole means of justification. Yet, it is never alone in the person justified, but is always accompanied by all other saving graces. It is not a dead faith, but works by love. Uh, you probably don't know me very well at all. Uh, you've just seen me here a few times, and uh, I already told you I'm from Port Stewart. I told you about my wife. Uh, well, I actually studied across in, in the United States in uh, a place called Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and the founding uh, professor there was a man called Gresham Metchen. Uh, he was a New Testament scholar, and writing on the book of James, he said this, as the faith which James condemns is different from the faith which Paul commends, so also the works which James commends are different from the works which Paul condemns. As the faith which James condemns is different from the faith which Paul commends, so also the works which James commends are different from the works which Paul condemns. So hopefully... Now, that helps you hear James on his own terms, even with his slightly different accent, yet still the inspired Word of God. I began by saying this letter is practical with all its commands, which we've addressed already in some ways, but we also considered that while James is to the point, he often doesn't explain his points, and there's also the issue of randomness and the seemingly no logical connections between topics and we're left wondering, is there an overarching theme to the book, uniting all the different parts? Well, as James comes to us, he's not merely writing to individual Christians, he's writing to churches. And so much of what he says is geared at the community of God's people. In fact, uh, a fantastic little book, a commentary, a little short book on the book of James uh, by a Northern Irishman called David Gibson, uh, and he says this, that James is a letter written to churches in danger of dying. Hold on a minute, that sounds quite serious. Not just a practical book of top tips for how to live your best life now. Why might he say that? A letter written to churches in danger of dying. Well, to answer that, I've taken my lead from Gibson and uh, another man, Andy Gemmel, both of whom I've had the privilege to meet and sit under their ministry, and they put forward the idea of James as a sort of doctor. Dr. James, a danger of dying? Well, if you're in danger of dying, if you can, you'll no doubt want to get checked out by the doctor. You'll get an appointment as soon as uh, you can. So what might be the cause of this danger of dying for those James writes to? Well, if we look down there, uh, at chapter 1 at the beginning, first there's the external context. 
uh, James is writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion or of, of those who have been scattered among the nations, the church in the world. You know, as I visited uh, from time to time uh, with uh, older members of the congregation, especially uh, maybe it's uh, grandparents, uh, and the conversation at times turns to how the world has changed so quickly and how hard and challenging it's going to be for their grandchildren uh, to be faithful as Christians in the world with all the changing landscape for morality and for ethics. And we are living increasingly in a society and a culture where Christians are no longer seen as the good guys, where Christian views are now not helpful but harmful, where self-denial is not so greatly valued in our day so much as self-actualization. It's getting harder to be a Christian, and the harder it gets, well, actually, the more we're getting back to the situation faced by many in the early church. And James does speak to that, He speaks to those who are dispersed away from their homeland, meaning struggle to survive, meaning they're dependent on the generosity of others. Who James writes to, these 12 tribes dispersed, we can think of them as refugees, seeking help, seeking the mercy of others in a foreign country. And it makes sense of of some of this content in his book. We read of poverty and oppression, And this due to the fact that they have had to flee Jerusalem. They're persecuted and on the run. They find themselves in a foreign land. It actually helps explain this major focus of the letter. Rich people taking them to court. Slandering Jesus by slandering his people. Chapter 2. Wealthy landowners taking advantage of these immigrants. In chapter 5 verse 4. So James writes to encourage suffering Christians in their difficulties. That could be one answer to why is this church in danger of dying? Why is any church in danger of dying? It could be the external pressures, the world, uh, the church out in the world. But this external pressure is not what causes Gibson and others to label this a letter written to churches in danger of dying. More than the external pressure that the church faces out in the world, there's the internal context where the world has already gotten into the church, where the world has gotten into the church. And we see this central concern of James, if you flick a couple of pages to chapter 4, verse 4, where James says, friendship with the world means enmity or hatred towards God. The letter seems to consistently tackle not just random topics, but issues that in one way or another show how the way of the world has crept in to infect the church. So the church in danger of dying is not because of problems out there, but problems in here. Churches that could become very sick and be on a one-way journey to the morgue. So James is concerned with the, the societal situation he finds his readers in, but far more is he concerned about the spiritual situation they find themselves in. And so let's look briefly in our remaining time, like any good doctor might, at this sickness, first considering its symptoms, then the diagnosis, and then the medicine. Let's look uh, first uh, at the symptoms. Uh, And as we've already uh, been saying, uh, there seems to be all sorts of issues and topics that James is tackling, and he 
He mentions it and he goes on to something else and then he comes back to it and they seem to be unrelated. Um, so what are some of the symptoms? We can see them in chapter one. Um, we can see uncontrolled critical speech. Chapter 119, uh, there's this call to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. It seems like there's this issue in the church of uncontrolled critical speech. It's taken up later in the book with slandering a brother, uh, with a call not to grumble against one another so that you may not be judged because the judge is standing at the door. There's uh, the issue of favoring the rich while forgetting the poor, chapter 2, at the beginning. Uh, there is uh, worldliness in the church, chapter 1, verse 27. One part of pure and faultless religion is to keep oneself unpolluted, unstained by the world. Chapter 4, uh, verse 1 to 3, there's fights and quarrels even amongst God's people. These fights and quarrels come because you're not getting what you want. You're not getting your own way, and so you quarrel and you fight. James says this is worldliness. And all of this, James boils down to the diagnosis. The diagnosis. I wonder uh, when you do think about medical conditions or, or symptoms, uh, there are some things that I'm sure the doctors here find easy to diagnose straight away. The symptoms are obvious. There's coughing. Uh, there's things to do. It's something that's an issue with the lungs. Uh, but there's one condition called lupus. Maybe you diagnose all the time if you're a doctor here, but apparently lupus, the symptoms are, are quite varied uh, and it's quite hard to diagnose because they seem to be all sorts of unrelated symptoms. Well, what's going on with James here? It's a bit uh, like that, but he does make a diagnosis and we can see it. Uh, he boils down all these symptoms to this diagnosis of double-mindedness, double-mindedness. We see it in chapter 1, verse 8. We read of someone who is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We see it again in, in chapter 4, verse 8, uh, where we see, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's sort of what we might call a, a spiritual schizophrenia, where we fail to put into practice what we profess to believe. So in one way, we, we say, oh yes, I'm all about this, I'm all about believing this, but then our lives show otherwise. Double-mindedness, a divided heart. This is James's central concern for the Christian community. His desire is that they would be undivided, wholehearted, perfect, mature in every way. For as we see, looking at the letter, the opposite of that is the case. The fact that James has to speak into these issues of quarrels and fights and the use of the tongue James is not just, though, a Christian practice policeman, but he writes out of pastoral concern, recognizes that churches that carry on like this are on the road to death. And so James is a warning. It's a warning to put things right in the church, put things right in your own life, put things right in the church. He does write with a, a warmth of tone, saying brothers or brothers and sisters on 15 different occasions throughout the letter, yet he also, when coming to the crux of the matter, Again, chapter 4 mentioned there, that's where it talks about this double-mindedness, uh, this, this heart uh, that is uh, divided. And what does he call the people there? He doesn't call them brothers. Chapter 4, verse 4, he says, you adulterous people. You adulterous people. 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Christian practice is what James is focused on. That the Christianity we, we profess with our lips is matched by a Christianity in practice in our lives. That we practice what we preach, that we practice what is preached to us. Or to say it in James's words, that we be not hearers only, but doers of the word. I wonder, if you think about your own life, your own congregation here, how might there be dividedness uh, here? Obviously, I don't know you very well at all. You will know your own heart. You will know what issues might there be uh, in this congregation of God's uh, people. And yet, isn't it interesting, we can be singing praise to God and then five minutes later out in the church car park, complaining and grumbling, complaining about her, complaining about him, complaining about the minister, complaining about something or other. Five minutes after, singing praise to God. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. The final verse, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. We sing it out in faith, but how easily do we follow it up with bad-mouthing someone who's part of our church family, someone who's not only made in God's image, but a brother or sister in Christ. Are we singing lies to God? Or is James saying this is an example of a divided heart? We can call it all sorts of euphemisms when we use our speech that way. We say, oh, I'm the sort of person who says it as it is. I speak my mind. But God, through this book, is telling us it's actually sin. He calls us adulterous. We're trying to be in a relationship with two lovers, God and you fill in the blank. What or who is it that is rivaling your love for God right now? What rivals your love for God? Maybe there are things that come to your mind or there are people even that spring to mind for you, but when we actually scratch down beneath the surface, the rival lover is the self, the self who has adopted the ways of the world and the spirit of the age. James is writing to those who profess faith, who call themselves Christians. His call is for God's people then and now to be mature and complete, not lacking anything. At the same time, he recognizes that we can't in this life completely escape the influence of sin. Read chapter 3, verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. But it is still the goal that he calls us to as Christians. Divided living is the essence of the problem when we are double-minded, where what we say on Sunday doesn't match up with what we do on Monday. <coughs> so we've thought about the symptoms, we've thought about the disease, this double-mindedness, this divided heart. Well, what about the medicine, finally? Well, God's grace is the medicine we need. Chapter 4, verse 6, James says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The medicine is repentance, regular, daily, heartfelt, turning away from sin and back to God, coming to him who is ready to embrace us. The medicine is to start calling our bad behavior what it is, sin. A sin, not excusing it by saying, well, it's 
I was tired, I had a bad day at work, kids have been a handful. All these things might be the case and are the case. They do add great pressure to us, but we are still responsible. Don't downplay your sin. When you do, that means you downplay your need. That means you won't seek the help that you really do need. James 4, 8 goes on, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James' message is plain and clear. It's written to exhort churches, churches then and churches now, this church, to turn away from this danger of dying, to not be divided. We might need, uh, you might need, to make amends with a brother or sister in Christ that you've wronged. But the work starts not with the outward actions, but with the divided heart that needs the healing grace of the gospel. When the heart is then dealt with, its fruit overflows in the outward expressions of our lives. I close with a few lines uh, from David Gibson. He says this, God is so tender with us, so merciful, so patient. Think how jilted lovers act when someone discovers adultery what happens there's always anger and then there are the cold shoulder the bitter exclusion the days of welcome warmth and intimacy are over inevitably in many cases separation is followed by divorce but what does god do you adulterous people draw near to god imagine yourself being cheated on and in response You're the one that gently woos the one who jilted you by saying, come close. That's what God is telling us in this book through James. James wants us to meet this God afresh, this God who says, come close, this God who says, draw near to me. The grace of God is sweet. It is sweet, sweet medicine. Grace can make the wounded whole. It can heal the divided heart. Well, let's pray.